Welcome back to A Feminist Therapist. I'm your host, David Averick, psychotherapist and social worker broadcasting from Baltimore, Maryland. This is part two of our conversation about the social construction of major depression and the consequences of that. In the previous episode, we started to unpack the reliance of our culture on a biomedical construction of depression and some of the problems that arise when we only look at depression as an organic brain illness, as opposed to looking at depression as a logical and reasonable response to living in an unequal and pretty messed up society. We're now going to continue our discussion by picking up on some of the arguments offered by the author Johan Hari in his recent book about depression called Lost Connections. So research talks about how social isolation is another major driver of depression. This is also something that a pill is not able to fix. As the political scientist Robert Putnam argues in his book Bowling Alone, since 1950, Americans have pretty much stopped hanging out. Even though for all of human history until about 20 minutes ago, humans were tribal by nature and lived in extended familial groups, now we socially construct the ideal way for a person to live her life in an atomistic, disconnected, individualized sort of way. But it's not just being alone that's the problem. Hari defines loneliness as not the absence of other people, but the feeling that you're not sharing anything of value with anybody else. In this vein, he compares social media to pornography. Using Facebook or Instagram to quote-unquote connect with other people scratches a certain itch, but it doesn't meet our fundamental human drive to connect with other people in a substantive way. In just the same way, pornography and masturbation are no substitute for good sex. Another key factor in depression, it turns out, is materialism. Desiring products, being socially conditioned to value shopping and phones and cars and clothes, etc., is an ongoing requirement for capitalism in its current form to persist. Quick side note, some people, including me, prefer to identify our current economic system as late capitalism instead of just saying capitalism, because saying late capitalism better captures the unsustainability and contradictory elements of the economic model prevalent in the United States at this time. Anyhow, Hari cites research saying that the more materialistic you become, the shorter your relationships are, and the worse quality they are. Materialism is an example of what's called an extrinsic value, which means a value that's imposed on the individual from their exposure to the social culture. That can be compared to an intrinsic value, which is something that deep down inside yourself you believe is important in order for you to feel good about yourself in the world. Research shows that people who are driven to achieve extrinsic goals do not, at the end, feel a measurable increase in their levels of happiness. But those who pursue and achieve goals based on intrinsic values do see increases in happiness, as well as reductions in levels of depression and anxiety. In the previous episode, we talked about how, for example, there is a form of women's wisdom which has to do with maintaining relationships and nurturing other people, and that that form of wisdom is important when we talk about strategies to manage and prevent depression, and similarly how there is a form of indigenous wisdom around living in balance with nature, and how crucial that is when we talk about depression as well. This contrast between extrinsic and intrinsic values reflects a form of wisdom belonging to the realm of spirituality, which is another type of wisdom, like women's wisdom or indigenous wisdom, that the medical establishment is not interested in, but which has a lot to teach us about how to manage depression. Anyhow, if you don't know what your intrinsic values are, that's okay. 
but you should write in a journal or talk to a friend or get a therapist and figure them out because I think that they're really important to know about if you want to live a life that you're proud of. Hari compares extrinsic values to junk food. They're okay once in a while as an indulgence for fun, but you cannot base an entire diet around them. Materialism, Hari says, is KFC for the soul. There's tons more in this book. I really liked it. But in general, Hari is arguing that we need to make a huge shift in how we treat depression, away from saying what's the matter with you and towards saying what matters to you. This is definitely aligned with my experience as a therapist. One style of therapy that I really like, known as ACT or Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, spends a lot of time talking about values and is in part designed to help clients clarify their values in order to help clients figure out how closely aligned their life is in the present moment to their values. The idea being that the more overlap there is between the life you're living and the life that reflects what you genuinely think is important, the less depressed you'll be. One thing that's amazing about being a therapist is that I've gotten to meet maybe a thousand people in my career so far. People with all kinds of problems and vulnerabilities and disabilities and structural forms of oppression, and I have yet to meet one person who was unable to name the next tiny step forward in living their values in whatever direction it was that they wanted to go in. This speaks to my theory that life is kind of like the video game Frogger, which is to say that I don't think you need to know the whole trajectory for how to get from one side of the pond to the other. You only need to be able to identify the next lily pad. And once you're on that lily pad, 100% of the time, if you find a way to manage your stress and chill and look around you, then you will be able to identify the next lily pad, even if it's a lateral lily pad or only a tiny bit forward. I think that adulthood is iterative in that way. It's just about making repeated, authentic efforts to get yourself closer to the life that you want. And you know how sometimes they say that the journey is the destination? Well, in this case, I think that that's true, because watching yourself tread that path and put effort into creating a life for yourself that is full of meaning and richness and purpose goes a long way toward treating depression and anxiety. It is very healing to experience self-determination, even in the context of oppressive circumstances. So circling back, if I had asked you before you listened to this podcast what caused depression, I bet you would have said something like it is based on a chemical imbalance in your brain and it has to do with genetics and heredity. The fact that this view, which accounts for only 37% of causes of depression, is the first thing that jumps into our heads when we ask ourselves what's the deal with depression, is proof of how pervasive the biomedical construction of depression really is. The psychiatric profession is locked into that biomedical model, and we as a society currently are locked into the psychiatric profession, which means that even as the National Institutes of Health acknowledges that only 37% of depression is caused by genetics and heredity, the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, continues to view depression primarily as an organic brain disease. And that's why there's no room for discussion of the influence of rape culture or economic inequality, or racism, or the lack of access to nature. And here I'm thinking about the ghettos of inner-city Baltimore. So to answer our original question of who benefits from a biomedical construction of depression, I would argue that there are three groups who benefit. 
The first is psychiatrists, and you can refer to episode 2 for my disclaimer about how I'm laying into psychiatry a little hard here. I'll just reiterate that as individuals, psychiatrists are frequently quite cool, but it's the APA, the lobby which represents them, that has a pernicious effect on society. Psychiatrists benefit directly from the idea that depression is an organic brain illness because it shores up their power in society, and it reinforces the strength of their own opinions. It also keeps them in business, and to understand why that's problematic, we have to spend a second looking into the history of psychiatry. So within medicine, psychiatry has always been something of a stepchild. And that was particularly true before Prozac came out in 1986. And the main reason for this is that the mind and the brain are incredibly complex, way more complex as an organ than a liver or a heart, which we understand really well in terms of physiology and how it works and what drugs do this and what surgeries do that. Our understanding of the brain compared to our understanding of the heart is still in its infancy. And as a result of that deficit in knowledge in psychiatry compared to cardiology, the interventions that psychiatry was able to offer were necessarily less effective in treating psychiatric conditions than the interventions offered by cardiologists to treat cardiac conditions. Anyway, after Prozac came out in 86 and was very effective compared to the antidepressant medications that were available prior to that, psychiatry as a profession began to increase in prestige. But as a result of that, psychiatry developed baggage around acknowledging that depression is only partly biomedical in etiology, because to a certain extent, it's the biomedical construction of depression itself which gives psychiatry its legitimacy within medicine. In addition, psychiatry and the APA are deeply embedded within a for-profit pharmaceutical industry, which directly funds and indirectly influences the direction of much of their research. Psychiatry is also embedded within a for-profit healthcare delivery system, which incentivizes them not to prevent depression on the community level, but to treat it on the individual level on an ongoing basis. But a fundamental issue is that medical school doesn't really touch the stuff around the social and environmental causes of depression in particular and mental illness more broadly. This is a major failure of our medical education system. But as a result, challenging the biomedical model becomes heretical and unorthodox for psychiatrists to do. But let's say you were a psychiatrist who does share this analysis. There's no way within our current healthcare delivery system to be able to articulate a critique of the social culture that drives depression. You're locked into the billable hour and writing prescriptions all day. But in addition to that, there is also a lot of groupthink in medicine, which prevents people from wanting to challenge the dominant paradigm. That's not to say that nobody's doing it. The Boston-based nonprofit group Partners in Health, for example, which is super great, supports a program in Guatemala related to exhuming mass graves from that country's civil war so that townspeople can conduct proper and dignified reburials of their loved ones. Partners in Health recognizes that this activity is crucial for the mental and spiritual health of the community. That's just one example of medical providers looking beyond medicine to treat depression. I just wish that the APA and the medical establishment more broadly would take notes from PIH's socio-political and justice-oriented approach to health. So for the record, social work, my industry, is not immune from the same market force pressures that psychiatry is vulnerable to. Just like psychiatry is a stepchild of medicine, psychology is a stepchild of psychiatry, and social work is a stepchild of psychology and sociology. 
In social work these days, there are a lot of people who like to focus on generating peer-reviewed research and performing social science. I think that this is a valuable activity, but I think that in general, social workers need to refocus our attention on our original goal, which is advancing the cause of social justice. I think that we need to focus on strategizing around how to best help our clients overturn the systems that are causing their depression. Obviously, research matters, but at this point, we have reams of data, buckets of hard evidence that racism and economic inequality are making people sick in their minds and their bodies. But we're not using that data to craft policy. The problem is not a lack of data, or how good our methods of data collection are. The problem is that people who hold power don't give a fuck about our data. That's why mental health professionals need to start getting their heads around the idea of grassroots organizing and political activation as treatment for various mental health conditions. This is where researchers need to be focusing their energies, rather than on generating more data that's just going to sit there unused by policymakers. We need to be asking ourselves, is the information that we are seeking to generate with our research going to directly contribute to our clients' abilities to overturn the structures that are holding them down and causing them to experience depression, anxiety, and trauma? I think that social workers and psychologists and psychiatrists have an ethical mandate to take the information that we have about how sexism is toxic and racism is structural and pass that information on to our clients who are most directly affected by those systems. The structural problems that cause depression and anxiety, like racism and sexism and income inequality, require structural solutions. Not just prescriptions and not just individual therapy, which too often localizes the problem within the individual rather than within the society. If we're looking for options, we could take a page from the playbook of second wave feminism and bring back consciousness raising groups. These were big in the late 60s and early 70s, in which women would get together and sit around and talk about how the problems that they were experiencing as individuals, and which they thought were personal problems, actually represented manifestations of sexism and patriarchal rape culture holding them down. Consciousness-raising groups are the origin of the feminist statement, the personal is the political, as well as the statement, women aren't screwed up, they're screwed over. Group therapy, for example, is billable. It's covered by Medicare and Medicaid and private insurance. Why not use the modality of group therapy as a space to directly explore these experiences with our clients? Okay, back to business. So the second group that benefits from the social construction of depression as a biomedical illness is, of course, the pharmaceutical industry. This industry is dependent on us continuing to believe that our psychic pain is a chemical problem with a chemical solution. But the result of that misperception is, as Hari points out, that we as a culture have ended up with a distorted sense of our own distress. Also, let's notice how the way we think about antidepressant medications represent an embedded aspect of late capitalist culture, that no matter what problem we're experiencing, we're automatically trained to think that there is for sure a product out there which can solve that problem. But let's be realistic. If we're treating only the symptoms of a problem and not the root causes, should we really be expecting the problem to get any better? I'm saying this with a lot of love. If you have depression and all you're doing to treat it is taking a medication, you're not making any lifestyle changes or getting any therapy or making any effort to fix your lived environment, then you need a better plan. It's important to acknowledge that regardless of their effectiveness, antidepressant medications are cash cows. 
Because if you're curious about whether or not the pharmaceutical industry has your best interests at heart, just check out Purdue Pharma. For years, Purdue Pharma marketed OxyContin as possessing a low potential for abuse, even while their internal company memos were saying the exact opposite. Now we have an opioid crisis, one in which this company, Purdue Pharma, played a disproportionately large role. By the way, if the behavior of Purdue Pharma reminded you at all of how the fossil fuel industry knew for decades that they were causing climate change, or how the tobacco industry knew for a long time about cancer, but lied about it, then Mazel Tov, you have stumbled on the concept of cost externalizing, which late capitalism is completely dependent on in order to persist as an economic system. Last thing about medications, I was at a wedding a while back, and a lady friend came up to me and said, oh, what a beautiful ceremony, I cried, and that's saying a lot because I'm on a lot of antidepressant medications. When we're numbing ourselves to our pain, we're tuning ourselves out from valuable information. Perhaps we need to be listening to that pain to see whether we can take instruction from it so that we can make real structural changes to our lives and to society and become less depressed that way. So the third and final group who benefit from a biomedical construction of depression are the ruling class, aka the 1%, aka the political and economic elite who control the levers of society and the economy. Why do they like it when you're depressed? Think about it. If 63% of depression is caused by social and environmental factors, which necessarily includes political and economic factors... And addressing those root causes will absolutely mean challenging and perhaps even dismantling late capitalism, halting the destruction of the natural environment, smashing patriarchal rape culture, undoing and then providing reparations for racism and genocide, addressing extreme income inequality, and providing realistic alternatives to materialistic consumption. Basically, all of the super screwed up structural stuff which directly benefits those who hold real power in our society then yeah, policymakers and those who bankroll their political campaigns aren't going to be very interested in a non-biomedical construction of depression. Perhaps you think I sound a bit conspiracy-minded, but I would point out that a group doesn't have to have designed a particular setup in order to benefit from it directly in an ongoing way. Because when medical science is held up as the only valid truth, the arbiter of information in our society— and medical science tells us not to pay attention to the social culture or political environment as the causes of depression, but instead to focus only on your genes, which you can't change, or your internal biology, which we simply don't understand well enough to the point where we can actually cure depression, then what's the consequence of that? The main consequence is that we lose sight of the fact that we have the ability to change things. Think about it. If we can't imagine the changes that we need to become less depressed, then we can't demand them of policymakers. The amazing thing is, when we talk about overturning the structural conditions that cause depression, the very act of overturning is itself a really important treatment for depression. This is the fundamental point I'm trying to make with this podcast, A Feminist Therapist. It turns out that fighting against the thing that's screwing you over is one of the best ways to get relief from the depression or anxiety or trauma that you acquired from being screwed over. 
If the patriarchy is getting you down, then join with other people who are working on smashing the patriarchy. If racism is getting you down, get with Black Lives Matter or join another anti-racist network. If you're feeling ashamed of your race privilege, you can join a white anti-racist group. There's a bunch of really active ones right now, like Surge showing up for racial justice. Or maybe you think that extreme economic inequality sucks. Then learn more about organizations like ITEP, the Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy, which advocates for a more just tax code, which we really need. What do these solutions have in common? They're about getting with other people. If we train our brains to start considering our distress and our joy as something that we share with a network of people all around us, then we're going to start feeling different. One thing to keep in mind about allostatic load is that the people who make the rules in society, the ones who decide what the economy looks like and what healthcare looks like, etc., are almost always the ones without significant allostatic burdens to bear. And they for sure do not want us to start thinking about depression and happiness as collective experiences. Whether Republican or neoliberal Democrat, they want us to think that happiness is a new iPhone. When it comes to depression, they want us off by ourselves, alone, in our rooms, freaking out in our heads. Because when we're doing that, we're too busy to call BS on their policy priorities. And if you can dig that message, but you're not ready to join up with the movement yet, then you can still help by calling BS on the biomedical construction of depression. Because remember, the privileging of biomedical rationality represents just one way of thinking about depression. There are other types of wisdom on the block, too, and it turns out that these non-medical, non-capitalist forms of wisdom have a lot to offer when it comes to treating depression, which is definitely the public health crisis of our time. As of right this second, very few of the answers offered by these other forms of wisdom are reflected in the realm of public policy, and that has to change right away. But let's also be realistic. Yeah, we need a better policy response to rape culture and environmental degradation, but should we expect one from this administration? No. We need to do our own work, just like the racist rape apologists on the alt-right are doing their work to build the culture that they would like to see. I firmly believe that the process of creating the culture that we want has the power to heal our depression. In her journal, Sylvia Plath wrote, To annihilate the world by annihilating oneself is the diluted height of desperate egoism. From the outside, the act of suicide looks a lot like self-annihilation, but from the inside, from the perspective of the suicidal person, it's frequently about wanting to make the world disappear, which is a different way of saying, maybe if the world was a better place, I would still want to be in it. So, if you're depressed, consider. Perhaps there's a reason for that, and it's not just in your head. That's what the man wants you to think. Thanks for listening to episode 3 of A Feminist Therapist. If you would like to reach out, please do so. You can find me on Twitter at FeministMHTX, Instagram at A Feminist Therapist. You can also email me, a feminist therapist at gmail.com. If you would like to be interviewed for this program about the sociopolitical aspects of your mental health condition, please reach out at your convenience. If you live around Baltimore and you want to do some therapy with me, definitely reach out as well. Thank you so much for listening to A Feminist Therapist. My name is David Averick. Have an awesome day.